After one comes two. Last week was one, today is two. So it's part two in our series called Prepare, and our subtitle is Defending Your Faith Without Losing Your Mind. So that's the point we're doing. What we're trying to do in this series is to uh, help you to feel more settled, more prepared, more at ease um, when you come across those quick moments when a, when a religious-sounding um, element comes up in a conversation, and then suddenly it sort of vanishes in front of you. This is not for leading a seminar. You're not doing a training session right now or anything like that. This is for just dealing with comments from people that you know around you, and it comes up, and then it disappears. You're in a room, and there's a question that comes up about faith, and, and it's there, and you hear it, and, and you just don't know what to say. And, and, and while you're readying yourself, or you're trying to say, i got to say the right thing, the topic switches and everything just moves on. So we're going to try and help you to be prepared. 30 seconds, one-liners, something very brief that will help you move into that. So what we're looking at is what to say when there's little time and even less interest. That's sort of the way it goes. People weren't asking for deep answers. They were just making a comment and they keep right on going. So people frequently, maybe your family, use recurring events to tell you the same or similar bad church or bad Christian story. You come at Easter, you come at Thanksgiving, you come at Christian, and they'll say this, do you know about, oh, you wouldn't believe who I met. And it's so hard to actually get into a genuine conversation. And so this is a way to help you respond in those. So that's what we're looking forward to. That's the conversation that we're going to do. How do we move that conversation somewhere instead of just letting the bad linger and then we move on. So this is not about answering complicated, in-depth questions. You're not going to have to learn Greek to be able to do this. It's about being prepared in the moment so that you don't feel thrown. I should have done something by just a passing comment. So last week, we started off by looking at a, what I think is a fairly familiar passage from Peter. Peter is one of Jesus's closest friends, and what he said about being prepared, I think, applies to us very, very nicely. So we'll go back to that. First Peter Chapter 3, starting at verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for the, for the reason, um, to give the reason, the hope that you have. It's great. It's succinct. It's clear what he's going on about there. It's a great reminder and a great direction. Be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. He doesn't say, be ready to answer every question. He doesn't say, be ready to explain every verse that someone points to and says, yeah, but what about that one? He doesn't say that you have to be able to explain why there are so many weird Christians who do weird things. Just be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. Be ready to answer why you personally have decided to follow Jesus. Don't explain the whole system. Be prepared to defend your decision to follow Christ. Be prepared to defend your hope or your confidence in Christ. What's your reason? How would you describe this clearly and succinctly? So last week we looked at how Peter would answer that question. Peter says, you know what, my answer is easy. If you want to know why I follow Jesus, even though he died, the answer is this. He didn't stay dead. My answer is the resurrection. I saw him die. I looked into the empty tomb, and then I had breakfast with him on the beach with a bunch of my friends. 
In the first century, everyone who was a Christian anchored their hope not in their personal experience, not in an answered prayer, not because God came through for them at a hard time. Those are all good things, and that's modern language. But in the first century, those people anchored their hope to an event in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we said last week as we were getting prepared um, to answer regarding your hope that the, the language that you... Um, the language of Jesus is important in your answer. It's not just God. And, and I highly recommend that you find a way to describe how you have anchored your faith in Jesus with the resurrection. I think that makes the most sense. It compresses everything down. It focuses the issues very nicely. And we're going to talk further about that today. And maybe you'll see why I think that's important. And we finished last week with a working statement, a statement that you might want to rewrite or polish for yourself Change it to your words. But this was the statement. Maybe some of you remember it. I believe Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. I know that what just happened that you heard about in the world, that's terrible. But the reason that I'm a Christian is because I believe Jesus died for my sin and that he rose from the dead. Then we drop down to part two. I believe that Jesus died for my sin and he rose from the dead, but I don't believe it just because the Bible says so. It's better than that. And that's where we left. So today, that's where I want to pick up. This week, we're going to talk about the better than that part, okay? So what we're going to look at, what we're going to look at is the topic of the Bible. When the Bible, how do we talk about the Bible when the Bible is part of the subject, okay? The reason I bring this up, the reason I'm saying it like this is that there's a problem that a lot of people will have, um, a lot of us have. We have a long-term history with the Bible, and it taints the way that we think of it and the way that we try to communicate about it. And so here it goes. The issue is sort of like this. We are presented with the idea of the Bible. And when you started that, somebody probably told you something like, the Bible is infallible. It's the inerrant word of God. And so that's what you believe. And the problem is that we find that we are believing that the, the Bible is infallible, but it's seemingly indefensible as a foundation for our faith. It's very hard to be able to argue in this way. And that's where people come and they want to argue about. So we don't talk about this much as insiders, but it's important. The Bible was brought to us and taught to us as the foundation of our faith. And it was presented as the infallible book. No error. Everything in it is true and equally true. But in the real world, that's kind of indefensible. It's not an easy way to have a conversation. You might have heard... Uh, the statements that kind of summarize belief here. I believe that the word of God is infallible. It's inerrant. But then people start asking questions. And, you, and you've never thought of that question. And you get nervous. I got to do this right. I got to defend it. God's depending on me, right? And so when you're not sure, what quite often happens is we, we don't say, I'm not sure. Let me find out. What we, what we do is we have a thought that says, the Bible's inerrant. And you got to believe that. So the way that we get everybody to understand what we want is to just talk louder, right? Let me say the same thing louder. Now it's more true. And then if that doesn't work, we kind of get to the place where we, we respond and we say, how dare you speak about the Bible like that? And in our sincerity and in and, and our, and our passion, 
doesn't communicate well for us. I believe it, but I don't honestly know how to defend it or to talk about it. So here's the really great news. You don't have to, all right? We don't have to defend the entire book in that one, congreg- in that one conversation. So don't run away. I'm not saying that we can't defend it. I'm saying you don't have to to start the conversation. Listen, okay? Think this through. There are many, many stories dealing with people's lost faith. I used to be a Christian, but I can't because of. Right? We, we started the year with a series called, I Want to Believe, But. Many of these stories have the line in them that says, I was a Christian, and then I went to university. That element is so common in these stories. And while there, people began to directly and indirectly pick apart the infallibility of the Bible. People begin to question some of the things that we have always just believed. Consequently, faith is lost because no answers were apparent. Here's an example of that post-university experience from a a young lady named Jessica Meisner. We evangelicals, with our infallible view of Scripture ripped from our hands, were left grasping for air. If you crumple and toss out a literal reading of the Bible, then what does it mean to talk about Jesus literally dying for your sins? What happened to her has happened to many people. She went to college believing that the Bible is an infallible book. This is the story of my faith. This is what I believe. And then someone came along and they said to them, hey, do you know about this one part? Can you explain this one thing over here? And then what they thought was so sealed and so settled is now in question. And they have one of these and they hold one of these And they they read one of these, but they don't know what to do with it. And because someone asked a question about something that they couldn't explain, they said, wow, I don't know what to do. And they thought, if someone can show them one part that's not true, then the whole thing is a house of cards. They pulled out some verses from Genesis, and, and somehow John no longer is true. Someone said, well, what about this historical information? Well, that just can't be right. And so they thought the whole entire Bible just collapses. We've got nothing to stand on because the Bible's infallible and the Bible's inerrant. And if it can't be right here, then it can't be right there. What am I going to do? So like many people, she walks away from Christianity because someone told her something about the Bible, something she didn't know. Now, here's the great news. The foundation of our faith as Christians is not the Bible. The foundation of the faith of Christians is not a book. The reason that we believe and we believe in what we believe is not because of what's in between the pages called the table of contents and the maps. Even if people could poke holes in the infallibility of the Bible all day long, it does nothing to diminish the significance of the truth of what we believe as Christians. Who's getting nervous? Right? It's messing with the Bible. The Bible's infallible. The Bible's an error. We don't talk about it like that. Hang on just a little bit longer, okay? But first, here's something that you have probably never been taught. 
Christians take the Old Testament seriously because Jesus did. That's why we take the Old Testament seriously. Jesus is our center. We are Christ-centered. Jesus first. The reason we believe and value the Old Testament isn't because it's in the Bible. The reason we take it seriously is because Jesus took it seriously. You did not become, there is no one here who became a Christian because someone said, here, read Genesis. And then you read Genesis and you said, wow, I think that's true. What came next? And then they gave you the book of Exodus and you read that and you said, wow, that's amazing. That's fantastic. What came next? You were not given piece by piece the Old Testament books one after another, whereupon you happily said at the end, I'm a Jew. Is there any more? And then sure, sure there's more. Here's the book of Matthew. Well, the book of Matthew came after 400 years of silence. But then they gave you the book of Matthew and you say, great, that's fantastic. Now I want to become a Christian. Nobody has that story. That's not how it works. Somebody told you about Jesus. And you put your faith in Jesus. And then after you did that, they handed you this thing and they said, here's what we believe. Take it, learn it, study it. And you put your faith in Jesus and then you got the book. Here's where we learn more about Jesus and everything else that we believe. It's all tucked away inside here. The point is, we take the Old Testament seriously because Jesus took the Old Testament seriously and we follow Jesus. We are Christocentric. Again, Jesus first, then everything else after. When Jesus was on earth, when he was walking around and talking with people, he made a lot of comments about the Old Testament. He obviously believed that it was true. He told others to follow the directions within. This statement in particular tells us how seriously Jesus took the Old Testament. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus believed that the Hebrew Bible, they didn't call it the Old Testament, right? Jesus believed that the Hebrew Bible was inspired. We follow Jesus on his view of the Old Testament. He mentioned many of the characters that, that, uh, that are in the Old Testament. He spoke about them, and he spoke about them as if they were real people, not interesting characters from stories. What sounds more compelling to you? Think about this. And maybe what sounds more compelling to people around you? Remembering last week we said that as a whole, people will poke uh, holes in your faith. They'll poke holes at your church. They'll take shots at what the church has done. They'll take shots at church history. But they don't tend to take shots at Jesus. Okay? What sounds more compelling? I believe in the story of Adam and Eve because it's in the Bible. Or I believe the story of Adam and Eve because Jesus did. Jesus talked about Adam and Eve. Jesus talked about the creation story in Matthew chapter 18. So instead of starting by arguing science and authorship of Genesis or, or any of the other things that people find as stumbling blocks, I believe it because Jesus believed it. The rest is a conversation for another day. The reason I believe the Old Testament is because I believe that Jesus believed it. My view of the Old Testament is the same view Jesus has. 
not had, the same view Jesus has. In being prepared, our goal is to get people to Jesus as quickly as possible. The faith conversation goes to Jesus first and as fast as possible. Remember, you are only responsible to explain the hope that is in you as it relates to your decision to follow Jesus. Now, at this point, the conversation, uh, it, it can come up and people go, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. And here's the big objection. Since the Bible is the source of what Jesus said, aren't we using the Bible to prove the Bible? Very common, very common criticism or objection. It's circular reasoning. You can't do that. You're saying the Bible that contains the Old Testament and a New Testament can't prove the Old Testament by looking at the New Testament because it's the same book. The answer, absolutely not. You may, may not know this, but the word Bible actually comes from a Latin term. And the Latin term actually comes from a Greek term. And the Greek term means books. When you say the word Bible, what you're saying is books. And the S is particularly important. I've said this many times, and I'm sure many of, many of you already know this. The Bible is a collection of ancient manuscripts. 66 ancient manuscripts. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Each of these 66 different and individual manuscripts existed before they could ever be found bound together in what we refer to for the sake of convenience as the Bible. Many generations ago, someone bound all the Old Testament books together into what became known or what language we would use to describe as the Hebrew Bible. Before there was a Christian Bible, there was the Hebrew Bible. Then as Jesus went around and preached and taught, people began to write down what Jesus said. So eventually there came to be these ancient manuscripts known as the Gospels, known as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then after Jesus left the earth and ascended into heaven, the next generation of people who knew him and were eyewitnesses to him began to write as well. And that is where we get most of the ancient, most of the rest of the ancient manuscripts that we call the New Testament. But all 66 documents existed individually before the Bible. They existed before we called it the Old Testament. All those books are books. They were all individual units. Before there was a New Testament, all those things were individual units, individual manuscripts, letters, gospels, and then they were bound together. The most important ancient manuscripts from our, for our discussion are the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So here's a very um, significant distinction, and this is part of the thinking part. Are we all thinking still? Anybody lost? Christians don't believe the Gospels are reliable because they are in the Bible. 
Christians believe that the Gospels were included in the Bible because they are considered reliable. Do you hear the difference? Imagine for a moment that this is just a a book, a collection of short stories, okay? Now, many of you have gone to university or college, and they asked you to buy an anthology, right? And you'd say, why do I have to buy this giant book so I can read four stories? Oh, but it's not just four stories. Those are four of the greatest stories in history. Do you know what make those stories great? Are those stories great because they are in an anthology that is called the greatest stories in history? No. The reason that they are in a collection of short stories that are known as great is because they were great long before there was ever a collection of the best stories. Right? Long sentence, I know. Okay. In the same way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the testimony and the life of Jesus, they were included into the collection of ancient manuscripts because they were considered by people close to the action and people who, um, who had studied and compared that they had been found to be the authentic words and actions of Jesus. This group knew that for generations and generations, people would want to know what Jesus said and where he went and what he did. So fortunately for us, the four Gospels were collected. In truth, those four Gospels became part of a document long before the Bible ever came to be. They were floating around together about 70 or 80 years after Jesus died in a volume called The Gospel. Great name, right? Of course, it wasn't in English, but hey, that's our translation. The Gospels existed before the Bible. Our summary statement then would be this. The Gospels are considered reliable because of who wrote them and when they were written. Okay, next thing. Most important date for Christians other than anything that actually happened in the Bible. Okay? Here's a big date that happens after the Bible stuff. 70 A.D. In August of 70 A.D., something tremendously important happened, and we don't tend to study it. We don't tend to mark it in history. If you take history, they don't tend to look at this date as a big deal. This is now in the middle. 70 A.D. is in the middle of what was then known, or what became known later as, the first Jewish war. Don't worry, they had lots of other wars, but they all had different names. This is the first Jewish war. This was the first major rebellion of the Jews against the Roman Empire. And it started off as skirmishes, a little bit here and a little bit there, gangs of people that had gathered together to basically go out and terrorize Roman soldiers and Roman citizens who lived in Palestine. Rome finally got tired of it. Why are there so many problems in this small, tiny little area on the map? Why is this area such a problem? So they sent General Vespasian down to quell this riot, to restore order, Roman authority. So he rolls in and he begins to conquer village and town and village and town and village and town. And finally, they sort of get all these guerrilla kind of fighters or what they would call terrorists 
to move, to, to, to shove them all down, and they, and they all run to Jerusalem, and they hide out. And while there, they storm the Roman, they storm the Roman garrison in Jerusalem. They, they overrun it, and they kill all the soldiers that are inside. They take all the weapons. Then they send a group of them to run up to the fortress called Masada and collect the weapons that were up there that Herod had stored there years and years and years ago. And they pull all those weapons back. They come to Jerusalem. They lock the gates. They, they shut the place down. They take everyone captive who's not supportive of them. And Vespasian gets word of this. So he comes and he demands that they surrender the city of Jerusalem or else. Well, these guys are on the inside. And they got the city walls all fortified. They got the gates all locked up. They've got food. They've got all kinds of resources inside. And they say, surrender? No way. Come and get us. So for about four or five years inside the city of Jerusalem, it is chaos. You've got all these different gangs that sort of are vying for power within the city, but then they unite to fight the Romans outside the city. And these guys were extraordinary warriors. They would open up the city gates themselves. They would go out and attack the Romans. They didn't wait for Rome to come and get them. They didn't wait for Rome to try and scale the walls. It's a fascinating story. And it plays out like this between 66 and 69 AD. Finally, Vespasian goes back to Rome because he's got to become the new Roman emperor. And he leaves his son, Titus, in charge. One thing you got to do, Titus, take this city. Get rid of these Jewish rebels. Shut down all this noise in here. So Titus and his army dig a ditch all the way around the city of Jerusalem. For those of you who like to track this sort of stuff, maybe with your Fitbit, that's about 68 and a half kilometers of ditch they dug around it. And then they build a palisade outside of that with about 35 different forts all around the city. They're not playing. They're going to starve the people out, and they are hunkered down to wait. And they try over and over and over again to break through the walls. And they try to tunnel under the wall, and they just couldn't get in there. Again, a fascinating story in military history. But at one point, Titus gets so angry, and his soldiers are so angry that they begin to crucify Jews all around the city. Any Jew that they can find in the area, somebody who slipped out overnight, somebody who was trying to do something else, they collect them. Even people who had turned traitor and were with them, they crucify them too. The, Jews, the, the Jewish historian Josephus who was captured by Rome earlier and then forced to work for them, he recorded the history. He wrote it down, and his books are still very available for you to acquire. And in one busy day, Rome crucified more than 500 people all around the walls to scare Jerusalem into surrender. Well, they finally break through the outer wall. But you know what? Jerusalem has three sets of walls. So they, uh, they get through it, and they build a giant, a huge battering ram. And they, and they made it through the second wall, and then things kind of stall. And finally, in 70 AD, Titus and his soldiers finally break through that wall, and they got into the city. They invaded Jerusalem, and they were mad. Many of these soldiers had been working on this siege, digging that ditch, building the palisade, making the forts, waiting and waiting. In the summer, it gets so hot there. And in the winter, it's cold enough for snow. And they're just waiting and waiting. Many of them had been waiting for two and a half years. Some of them had been waiting for four years for this siege. 
And when they stormed into the city, they're so mad. They are so upset with what they have had to endure that they go crazy inside. And they accidentally, that's the way it's recorded, they accidentally light the Jewish temple on fire. And that very same temple that, that Jesus was in and spoke to, the, the very same temple that, that Peter and James were, were, were in and they, they were proclaiming and preaching boldly from there. Everything in the temple that could burn, burned. And finally, Titus gets in there and they completely destroy the city. Here's just a, a, a snapshot of what happened to that invasion in, in Jerusalem, 70 AD that Josephus, Titus Flavius Josephus, writes about when he was there that day, he had become a friend of Vespasian and a friend of Titus, Vespasian's son. And he said, the slaughter within was even more dreadful than the spectacle from without. Men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those who entreated mercy were hewn down in indiscriminate carnage. The legionaries had to clamor over heaps of dead to carry on the work <coughs> of extermination. <coughs> this is a big deal. Jo Josephus, as a historian, said that more than a million people died. Other historians say, you know what? He's exaggerating. He's lost his mind. It really was only about 300,000 people who died that day in a very small piece of real estate by modern comparison. It was only 64 kilometers all the way around. To the Jews, most importantly, the temple was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The bricks were pulled apart and dragged away. It was cleared, not broken, cleared away. And here's the significance. That meant that on that day, ancient Judaism ceased to be in August of 70 AD. No more temple, which meant no more temple sacrifice. No more sacrifice for sin. The temple was the pinnacle of Jewish experience. They believed that Yahweh resided there, that his glory dwelt inside that structure. And when Rome took the city and Rome destroyed the temple, Titus went in again and completely removed it. The message was bold and the message was clear. You will never rebuild this temple because we believe that this temple is at the center of your rebellion against Rome. Today, if you go to Jerusalem, you can visit the Temple Mound, the Temple Plaza, but there is no temple. There has not been a temple there since Titus destroyed it in 70 A.D., about 2,400 kilometers away is the city of Rome. When Titus finished with Jerusalem, he left. And he sent the rest of his troops to the fortress of Masada, where the last people were hanging out. It took two or three more years to take that and to finish off that last bastion of rebellion in Palestine. The story of Masada as well. Fascinating story. If you ever have the chance to read it or even watch the movie, um, the Jews are on top of a hilltop fortress. It's a stronghold, and they have vowed that they will never, ever bow to Rome. So just as the Romans finally get to taking the fortress, they all commit suicide. We will never be slaves of Rome. You will never take us. These are the kind of people that Rome had been fighting for about seven years. 
Titus goes back to Rome. His father Vespasian dies. He becomes the new emperor. He gets sick. He dies. His brother, Domitian, Titus's brother, becomes the emperor of Rome. To honor his brother, he builds an arch in one of the most prominent places in ancient Rome, right outside the Colosseum. Titus's brother Domitian built it in memory of the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple. It's called the Arch of Titus. Come in a little closer. This victory was such a big deal that it is thought, it was thought of, it was considered as the most significant accomplishment of Titus. Remember that war with the Jews? And if you ever go to Rome, you walk through this arch, come in the next one, look up on the inside of the arch, and this is what you will see. Here they're carting off things from the, the Jewish temple, and you can see clearly Jewish symbols that are there. This was such a big deal to the Romans that they came back to Rome. When they came back, they commemorated the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the Jewish temple, one of the great feats of Rome. It was such a big deal to the Jews, and it was such a big deal to the Romans. But is it a big deal to you? Many of you probably never even heard the story. Now, why in the world would I tell you that long, sad, horrible story? Why? There's no mention of the war against the Jews or the destruction of the Jewish temple in the New Testament. That's a big deal. The whole New Testament happened in this area. How could you not reference this major historical event? The entire way of life for the Jewish people, the Jewish disciples they grew up with, everything is now gone. So why is there no reference to this seven-year war that ended with the sack and destruction of Jerusalem and the holy, the holy city and the complete and utter destruction of the temple? The only logical explanation is that it hadn't happened yet. Next step, why is that important? Jesus was crucified about 32, 33 AD. The fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, well chronicled, happened in August of 70 AD. That's about 37 years between Jesus' crucifixion and the destruction of the temple. The Apostle Paul's letters are dated about 20 years after the crucifixion. It means that the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all recorded before 70 AD. That means that all of the Gospels were written and being shared and distributed while there were still living many, many, many eyewitnesses to the events of Jesus' life. People say this is the argument. Well, you know what? As time goes by, the Jesus legend kind of grows and it grows and people keep adding stuff in and all of a sudden he's our Savior, so nothing in there is really reliable. That is just absolutely false and shows that these people have no idea about history in general. Everything that is written in the Gospels was written down before 70 AD, not a long time afterwards. But wait, there's still more. If you were Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or if you were an imposter who was trying to make it sound like you were right in there, you would use this story to uh, make your point as a Christian. This is what Jesus said. This is what happened. 
They're saying quite frequently that the Gospels didn't show up for 100, 120 years later. But there's no mention of it. There's no mention at all of this incredibly significant event, significant to the Jews and to the Romans. Because all of our information about Jesus was in the ancient manuscript before 70 AD, which means who wrote it and when it was written gives it authenticity and it gives it credibility. What would a historian tell us about how long it takes for a myth or a legend to grow? How long does it take for uh, that to become a myth? How long does it take for something that actually happened to get added in with something that didn't actually happen, but it sounds like it stemmed from the thing that actually happened? That was confusing. The shortest period of time is about 80 or 90 years. The reason is because a myth can't develop until all the eyewitnesses are dead. There was a time when people couldn't imagine that anyone would ever say that the Jewish Holocaust in World War II would, ne- would ever be questioned. That people might begin to say it never happened. We now live in a time where that proposition is a reality, regardless of all the physical evidence. As the last Holocaust survivors die, somewhere in the world something comes up and the theory begins to float that the Holocaust never actually happened. But you can't effectively redact or rewrite history until all the eyewitnesses are dead. The fact that the Gospels were written when the eyewitnesses are alive, right there about, for about 30 years, maybe 40 years between the resurrection of Jesus and the fall of Jerusalem, that means that um, you can believe what you read about Jesus from people who knew Jesus, who saw Jesus, because there were plenty of people around who could have said, that stuff just isn't true. That never happened. He never said that. The eyewitnesses were still around. 37 years is only a long time to someone who's 37 years old. You don't forget major events in your life. They say people get confused. They can't remember these things. They think to themselves, wow, I just can't remember. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead or, or did he stay dead? I just, I can't remember. It's been so long. You don't Forget something like that. That kind of a thing sticks with you. This is why we take the gospel seriously. We take the gospel seriously not because they are in the Bible. We take them seriously because of who wrote them and when they were written. It's because of who wrote them and when they were written that we take them seriously enough to add them into our New Testament. So here's how we're going to be prepared. I believe the Old Testament and take it seriously but not because it's in the Bible. I take it seriously because Jesus took it seriously. Well, you just take Jesus seriously because it's in the Bible. No, 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 no. It's better than that. I take Jesus seriously because of what Matthew, Mark, Luke, Peter, John, James, his own brother, and Paul said about him. And fortunately for us, all the things that they wrote about him were collected and gathered together over time, bound together as the New Testament. They bound together all of these individual ancient manuscripts that existed on their own and were shared about on their own that later became bound in the New Testament. And then they just bound both of the Old and the New Testament together later on into the Bible. And then more recently, they translated that whole package of individual ancient documents into English so that we could read it more easily. So let's try this again. Just a quick summary. I believe... And I take the Old Testament seriously, not because I can explain it all, but because Jesus took it seriously. I take Jesus seriously because of who wrote about him and when they wrote it 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, his brother. What would it take for you to be convinced that your brother was the Son of God? We take the Old Testament seriously because Jesus did. We take um, Jesus seriously because of who wrote about him and when they wrote about him. Eyewitnesses, accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, Paul. Now here's the summary statement, okay? But don't, don't miss next week, okay? Because next week we're going to wrap the whole thing up with, with what's called good God. Dealing with questions about the character of God and his goodness. So remember, um, one, every one of the ancient manuscripts that have been bound together in this book that we call the Bible, which means that they are all books. They all existed on their own at one time. This means that they were all linked and yet independent of each other. So if you find it hard to believe in Adam and Eve or the flood or, or how many days creation took, just remember that you don't, if you don't like those things, that has no impact on anything like the resurrection. Somebody might come up and complain, oh, there's two Isaiahs, and okay, it still doesn't impact the resurrection. What you think of as a problem in one book does not invalidate all of the other books. This is a collection of ancient manuscripts, has remarkable symmetry, but they are not one manuscript from one author. If it came down to you, and you wanted to, to complain about the entire Old Testament, and I could say, fine, but from separate manuscripts, I can still say that I believe that Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. Why? Because Matthew said so, because Mark said so, because Luke said so. Because Paul said so, because Peter said so, because James said so. Separate authors, separate people, separate accounts, separate manuscripts. You cannot just blanket eliminate everything because of the convenient way that we've wrapped the package. You have to deal with each manuscript separately. It's not as simple as the Bible says. It's way better than that. I believe Jesus died for my sin and he rose from the dead. But I don't believe it because the Bible says so. It's better than that. I believe it because Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, and Paul said so. That's why my hope is in Jesus. That's why I've chosen to follow Jesus. A single event is the foundation of my Christianity and not a book. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why I have hope. The foundation of your faith is not your personal experience. The foundation of our faith is the resurrection of Jesus. Next week, we're going to take another look at the problem of pain from a different angle than we did last time. Father, thank you so much for ensuring that we would have these scriptures as a record of your relationship with humanity. Thank you for the gift you gave us and um, the people who did the hard work of writing them. Thank you for those who risked their lives and in some cases gave them so that we could have the scriptures in our own language. Thanks for the confidence we have in the truth provided. Give us the words and opportunity to take what we've learned and to share it with people who need a little more hope. Be at work in us and through us, Jesus, we pray. Amen. In honor of the man who left his country to go and tell others about Jesus, who has now been attached so much to that country, you don't know what country he came from, St. Patrick. Christ in front of you. Christ behind you. Christ above you. Christ below you. Christ to your left and to your right. Christ in your present and Christ in your future. The Spirit of Christ within you. May you be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated.
That's part of what it's known as St. Patrick's Breastplate, a prayer that he would pray regularly. What a great story of someone who said, I'm not going to just keep what I have for myself. I got to share what I have. Hope needs to go for me somewhere else. Thanks for being here. It's better when you're here. It's better when we're together. As you go, I want to remind you of that same message that, uh, that St. Patrick had, that his life gave. We are Christ-centered. We are spirit-empowered and we are mission-focused. The mission that we are on is for everyone, all the time, and everywhere.